This is the Life and Soul podcast with me, Emma Forbes. 2020 really was an eventful year, and amidst the madness, we've all had time to reflect on what we most appreciate in life. And although we're still surrounded by uncertainty, it's important to be reminded of what really matters. I'm going to be asking some fabulous guests what makes them tick, asking them what really gives them life and what really feeds their soul. So join me for some nuggets of wisdom, a moment to breathe, and above all, a good old chat over a virtual cup of tea. And I hope that by listening, you'll leave feeling a little brighter about the year ahead. Today, my guest is an award-winning writer, journalist, restaurant critic, broadcaster and podcaster. He now writes for The Observer. He's been a feature writer in The Restaurant Critic for the last 20 years. He also has his own podcast called Out to Lunch. Love the title. Interviewed all sorts of people um, like Rich D. Grant, who I also love, so I just had to mention him because he's one of my favourite people. Jay, welcome to my podcast. It's a delight to be here, Emma. I'm laughing because... Whether or not you remember when we last met, I don't know. Do you? (laughs) Well, you see, I was thinking to myself, your mum and late dad did used to come to my parents' house to parties. Nanette and Brian did come to my my mum was very good at collecting people. My mum was Claire Rayner and she did collect people. So I wondered whether we'd ever met that way but clearly you're referring to something else no I'm not because actually I had two ways that we because I was going to say our parents knew each other yeah and there's a potential there because I saw you're a year younger than me whether there was a kind of a moment in the garden playing or one of those moments that we don't even (laughs) remember and that there's some terrible little photograph that somebody one day will do but the other way we met is I was on Celebrity MasterChef Oh, God, you were, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) And you'll laugh because I I can't remember all the people I was in the rounds with, but I got through to the semi-finals, which was the restaurant critics round. Terrifying, isn't it, eh? Absolutely terrifying. A, I look revolting. I'm in such a muck sweat for the whole of that series, just sweating through those white things. But what happened was I was with Nadia Sawala, And it was just she and I. And the clever thing that she'd done, which I hadn't, because I'm one of those cooks that holds things together. And I'd actually impressed John by making a shepherd's pie, which nobody had done, and adding baked beans, which was an ingredient they'd never been asked for before on MasterChef. However, when it got to your round... why, to be honest. Go on. (laughs) When it got to your round, I thought... I was a lot younger than Jay. I thought, you have to impress a restaurant critic. So I need to do something bold and when you when you start to win which makes me sound really smug which obviously I wasn't because as you do know I didn't win Nadia did did, yes because she made a lot of things with rose petals and pistachios and stuff like that she went all out but you 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 start to go from round to round so actually they're asking you very quickly what are you doing tomorrow so they rang and you're tomorrow you're in the you know what are you going to cook I thought I'll do something (laughs) I've never done before and let me tell you subsequently never eaten again I decided to make red snapper because I thought it sounded good. Okay, the nice fish. And I'm known in my family as somebody that literally cremates most things. I mean, if I can overcook it, I will. John and Greg were doing their little bit of coming around in the kitchen and Nadia was being very, very inventive. And I thought, oh my God, I think I was doing something creative with sage and something else. But my fish, John came over and he just very gently tapped the fish and he went, you know, cook it. Right, and I thought, I know exactly what he's saying to me. It's code for the fact, Emma, you have overcooked the fish. 
So I'm going to just take it out of the pan right now and for once not create it. And there's a brilliant moment, which you only see when you've lost, <laughs> where you put your fork in that red snapper, and I'm not joking, blood spurts out. And you were, you were trying to be very sweet. You just said, gosh, it's, it's not very well cooked. I was like, oh, my God, it was repulsive. So I apologize in advance for giving you like a red snapper's innards and blood, which is what my dish must one be. Of those, one of those fish that you could have probably got swimming again with a couple of volts. <laughs> yes. Knocked through it. Well, you know, it's television and nobody dies. That's what I say. A few people cook some stuff. Nobody dies unless they eat the raw fish cooked by Emma Forbes. Well, there is that. And the reason, the only reason, because I'm always a bit rude about reality TV going, I never want to be in it. I like to watch it. The only reason I went into that one was because I thought, actually, it doesn't go to a public vote. And the only bit where you are sort of judged is by people that are properly acclaimed to be in that position. So therefore, I fully accepted it. So that, my friend, was the last <laughs> Well, and it should be said, people ask me a lot of questions about MasterChef. It's pretty much the only TV I do these days uh, for a variety of reasons, apart from uh, Dictionary Corner on Countdown, which I love. But, you know, they have endless questions about it. But I only get to see, we only get to see you contestants for a glancing 30 seconds as you career into the room. Pant, tell us what you've done and run off again. And so I apologise for not having immediately remembered that. Um, but that it, it's in the nature of the format. It is so fine. And actually, yes, you're right. It was such a fleeting moment. And I think we're much more likely to now dig up some terrifying old photograph in a garden somewhere with our parents which would be, you know, equally wonderful, to be honest. But anyway, I'm so thrilled. The bottom line is I'm super thrilled to now meet you in this capacity because I'm a Likewise. massive fan of your work and I very much go by your critiques of things and I love your writing. And so it's a joy that through the, uh, the wonderful effects of COVID, I have managed to finally meet you in a different way. Well, indeed, here we are in our in our offices or whatever you're in. Are you? Um, you're, you're in New York, aren't you? I'm in Long Island. I'm in New York, and I'm almost in a in a closet because I do it in a very small bedroom with a closet behind me with lots of pillows, thinking it's going to be my makeshift sound studio. I have to start really when I first started doing this podcast. I thought maybe I won't talk to anybody about COVID because maybe it won't be going on that long. But of course, it is. How was lockdown for a restaurant critic? Um, challenging. I, well, I don't say I was exactly a, a soothsayer, but I worked out a reasonable distance out what was going to happen, that restaurants would close. And almost a month before they did, before lockdown one in the UK, I started talking to my editors and said, there's a really good chance we're going to not have restaurants. So I need to come up with a plan. And what I, and pre-planning is, you know, is a very useful thing. So I came up with a list of maybe 10 different columns that I could plunder from the inside of my head. One of the benefits of having been doing this column for 20 years is I've got a lot of stuff in there. So I said we could, I could do a column, you know, what makes a classic restaurant? Why are hotel restaurants so terrible? Uh, what do we look for from a chain? Can they ever be good? And so I'd come up with this big list. And that, I think, was hugely beneficial because it meant that I, the moment it was announced, there was a bit of a lag because magazine deadlines, lead times can be about two weeks. Um, but I was able to to do that. I started to run out of steam, but by then the delivery boxes had happened. I started to do a bit of that. And then it was joyous when they started again. Open restaurants reopened. I managed three restaurant bookings in 24 hours. 
when they reopened on July the 4th, two on July the 4th and one on July the 5th. And that kept me going. And then this hit again. And we're as we talk, we're now back in lockdown. And yet again, I've had to reconfigure my column. And this time I am, I'm surrounded by some classic cookbooks, actually. I've got, um, this is the Claudia Roden, the book of Jewish food. And what I'm going to be doing for the next, well, couple of months, I think, is each week taking a classic cookbook down from my shelf and explaining the story behind it and why it was important and significant and its impact on restaurants. Interviewing a few people because there's no substitute for proper reporting in journalism. You can't just do it all off the top of your head. And cooking a few of the dishes. So um, if you'd asked me about a month ago, I would have been, you know, as Christmas was happening, I, I would have been terrified. But I've, I've worked it out. I know what I'm doing. So I'm fine. But the benefit is that I've been doing it for so long. That's why. I was going to say, well, it was, you know, that's a clever reinvention, if you like, of doing it. Because I think out of all the things in COVID that's affected one's life. I mean, I can honestly tell you um, where I am out here in Long Island, I, I haven't been to a restaurant mm. since March. And the reason I haven't been, I've supported them by getting takeout and I've, you know, obviously done that kind of element. But in terms of sitting in a restaurant, I found the whole experience so depressing to sit with perspex around me or, in a restaurant where there were two tables, where there used to be 20. Because for me, the experience was everything. Like it was the buzz, the feel of it. And, and I'm frightened by people, by waiters coming towards me in full PPE kit. And then I'm allowed to sort of miraculously take off my mask for a minute and then put it back on as I walk across. The I found it to me, and I, and I feel sad saying it because I wanted to support them so much, but I think it, it became hard. Well, it did become hard. You're certainly right. One of the uh, one point, I, I did a lot of reporting, feature writing, news reporting during the whole crisis. One of the things one of the great restaurateurs said to me, a chap called Mike Belbin, who ran the Eagle on Farringdon Road, the, the, the first gastro pub, he said, we're not in the business of selling steaks and wine. We're in the business of selling atmosphere. We're selling you a room that you want to be part of. And he, I, I, nobody had said that to me as clearly as that. That said... I did continue going. For the most part, I felt that the experience, while diminished, was still okay. It, it depended on the place. Some got it right, some didn't. Um, but I felt, in the end, my responsibility, if restaurants were open, was for me to go. The other day I did actually go. There's a great sort of place by the sea here, and it's freezing here right now, let me tell you. But they started doing these quite clever outdoor pods with a fire pit. So I pick probably the coldest day of January so far to, to go there, obviously. And we all pile in with like those um, heat, <laughs> heat pads. And we were given like plastic forks, paper spoons, oh, um, <laughs> wine in a cup. And I sat there and I was trying to be really jolly because I had like my, my, my son and I was like, no, no, this is great. And this is fun. And this is an experience. And afterwards, my husband was like, of all the places that you could have, just, we were like, we were like in an igloo and it was freezing. And I thought actually maybe that I probably didn't do it right. But I do feel, which I'm sure you do, a great sadness for these restaurants. Yeah, I couldn't do the job that I've done. You know, I every now and then through the past 21 years, 21 years, I've said, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to stop. But the fact is, I do love restaurants and I love restaurants Partly because I'm greedy, 
um, but also because of the theatre of them. There's a theatrical element to them. And they are about the suspension of uh, of a certain kind of life. I mean, you know, this is the Life and Soul podcast, and I'm sure you're going to ask me questions about mental well-being and all of that. And one of the things I've always loved about the the restaurant experience is that you go in, a good one, closes the door on the world outside, and for those three hours, two hours, however long you're there, hour and a half, it puts the world at bay. Now, that's been so much harder during the current crisis because the world has slipped in in the shape of masks or screens or disposable menus, but they've tried so damn hard. And in the UK, um, I don't know what it's going to be like in New York, a lot are not going to survive. And, I mean, eventually the economy will pick up and a lot will come back and the shape of it will be very different. And we perhaps will lose some that we won't miss so much. But I just ache for the people who are doing it. And there's something else I want to say, which is I made this point in a piece recently. People talk about the hospitality industry as this homogenous whole and full of, you know, people doing having careers in hospitality. And there's a lot of that. And that's very important. But the other thing is that hospitality underpins so much of our cultural life because it provides temporary jobs, short-term jobs for people who want to go on and do other things, for the struggling actor, for the struggling writer, for the artist who's trying to make their ends meet. Bar work, restaurant work, being a waiter has been a fundamental underpinning of that economy. What are they going to do now with the hospitality sector gone. And some people might think that's a, a sort of frivolous point, but I really don't think it is. I think that form of employment for people in the arts trying to find their way at the beginning of their careers or in fallow periods is really important, and we've lost it. I agree, and I think also you're right. You know, it, it's the whole experience. Going to a restaurant, it's the theatre of it. You know, oh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, because the nature of the industry I'm in, what I loved about sitting in a restaurant was sort of vaguely getting involved in other people's tables. You know, you sort of go in and you assess the room, and you go that couple in the corner are having the most massive round. I, I, I have to ask something. Given we don't come from entirely dissimilar families, it has to be said. Were you one of those kids who was dragged along to Joe Allen? On Exeter Street. All right, so anybody who doesn't know about Joe Allen in, it, in its pomp on Exeter Street, it was marked by only a brass plaque on the outside. Even seasoned cab drivers didn't know where it was. You pushed your way through the door into a basement where uh, Jimmy was playing the piano of musical hits, and there on the left-hand side, God forbid you should be sat on the right. We never were. Uh, <laughs> no. After curtain down, the entirety of the West End would come in, and it was a table-hopping scene. And it pushing through the door and that wall of babble of sound and the clink of a daiquiri in a glass in its prime. And it's amazing how long it went on for. It's still there as we speak. It is extraordinary. And I always regard Joe Allen as a, there's one in New York, um, as the place where I learnt to eat in restaurants and understand what they're about. I think you're you're quite right. I mean, we did have similar backgrounds and I spent a lot of time in Joe Allen's. And that's why I say I loved the theatre of it. It was exciting it was an experience and it was a real it was it was a joy I mean it was and it was music and it was everything and I think I'm I feel like you do I mean New York you ask me what New York's like New York is is dead I mean I think a lot of those restaurants won't come back because I think a lot of them spent a lot of money trying to come back and you know reinvented the wheel a little bit and did some quite clever and creative things but to have to go again and stop it and then come back and only be 20% full or four tables instead of 14. I just, I think it's going to be a long time. And I feel very sad about that. But I guess on the other hand, I've seen some incredible 
things like there was I, I've talked about them a lot on on this podcast funnily enough but I, I there was a very small catering company they just stuck in my mind that had just started out that I'd happened to use just before for my sister's 60th birthday and they were really cool they were these really enterprising girls and food was an art and it was beautiful and they have been so clever during lockdown doing these brilliant boxes every week it's a different box and the the care that goes into these boxes whether it's a, a cream tea one week or the next week it's the perfect sunday brunch and then they were making chicken pot pies that said f-u-c-k corona on them and it was it was just brilliant and so i i sort of admired people who had i guess the creativity to try and but, you know, whether that's sustainable, whether that makes money, I don't know. I think we will see different economic models. The comparison I use is with the foot and mouth crisis, which uh, destroyed British agriculture. And a lot of rural businesses reconfigured themselves as a result of foot and mouth. And we will see that. I think the meal delivery kits there, I know of one very particular restaurant, Northcote in Lancashire, which has started, had a really great success with its delivery boxes, high-end delivery boxes, £100 for two. Um, and they are considering building an extra building to house a new kitchen to do it. So we will see innovation and some of it will be very welcome. However, I do long... I'd be lying if I didn't say one of my many sort of <laughs> dreams is to walk Done. into a packed restaurant. Even the ones where I couldn't get a table would just be so great. I cannot imagine there is such a restaurant in the world, Emma Forbes, that you cannot get a table. Well, let me tell you the reason. And actually, it's a quick story that will just make you laugh. Uh, the on. Caprice, another restaurant that was very much of our parents' era and that whole showbiz yeah. crowd. And well before I was remotely famous or kind of doing much TV. My husband and I used to try and go there. We could always go if we were with my parents, but on our own, it was always a challenge. And it became this sort of ridiculous game because he would ring and do it under my married name. And they'd go, you know, four weeks next Thursday at five. <laughs> and I would ring and for a laugh, I would go, hi, it's Emma Forbes. Can I get a table for two tonight at eight o'clock? And they'd go, absolutely. So my husband was like, I don't mean to be rude, but like, you really are like, no, but like, I'm like, how are they doing? I, I don't know. I don't know. So we, we went for dinner that night and he said, as we leave, why don't you try again and see if you can get one for next Thursday? So I said, okay, challenge is on. And I realized as I looked down, they wrote down Anna Ford, because if I said my name quickly, they thought I was Anna Ford, who was super famous. So yes, I then was. used her name for... <laughs> <laughs> every Caprice booking I ever did. I go, hi, it's Anna Ford. And they go, hello. And, and they never seem to then realise I wasn't Anna Ford, but I get a table. You're right. Life and soul. I do chat to people about life. I do chat to people about soul. And one of the many reasons I wanted to chat to you is I like to think of myself. I'm obsessed with cooking. I love all things to do with food. And I am obsessed with wellness. But I like to think of myself, and I didn't come up with the name, but as somebody that's more of like a flexitarian, if I came to your house and you'd cooked me the most delicious meal from that the book of Jewish cooking you've just got there that you're reviewing, whatever it is, whatever it was, I would eat it and I would eat it with relish. I really love to be cooked for. But there is this huge industry of trying to put us in these boxes for food. That's why I say I'm a flexitarian because I love vegan food. There are some vegan food I love. I love all sorts of things, but I know you feel passionately against that sort of wellness guru type I really do. I mean, there's a very good word. I mean, it's been around for a long time and it describes the human race. Omnivore. It covers it. It does. I mean, it, it, it's been there for a very, very long time. And omnivore 
does it all. There is... My problem with the world word wellness, someone says I'm into wellness, and the test I use is, can you find someone who is a supporter of the opposite? No, you can't. And that's why I feel it's spurious. We all want to be well. We all want to be healthy. And the problem with the wellness industry, and it is an industry, is that it is glazed with a moral position which says you are a good person if you do these things, you are a bad person if you don't. And they are self-defined as well. And there have been a particular generation of online diet-related gurus who I fear preach to a vulnerable audience. I, I don't want to get into pejoratives, but, you know, stigmatise anyone. Often young women with concerns over diet. And they base a lot of what they say on medical bollocks. I, I come from a household. My mother was an, a medical advice columnist. I mean, she was an agony aunt, Claire, but she was a trained nurse and, and she kept up with everything. And I have an absolute bullshit detector when it comes to medical bollocks. Um, and a lot of what certain of these self-appointed wellness gurus get into it's just not true when they start talking about alkaline, you know, oh, you want you want your body to be alkaline. No, you don't. Your body's pH is absolutely fine. Don't interfere with it. Just need a normal diet. There's a lot of them who uh, will say, I was ill, and then I changed my diet to this, and then I got better. Failing to recognise that there is a thing called reversion to the norm, which is you would have got better whatever happened, but you're involved in magical thinking, which is you think that because you did that, that happened, when in fact it had nothing to do with that. And if you put yourself in front of a, someone who's medically qualified, they'd tell you it's utter cobblers. And yet it is uh, forced into the world through endless Instagram accounts and columns and badly written stuff. And it and it stigmatises a particular vulnerable bunch of people, usually at a very vulnerable time in their lives. It drives me insane. Yeah, and actually, do you know what? You really hit the nail on the head. And when I was doing some research and I was chatting to the lovely girl, Georgie, that helps me with all of this, she was like, are you going to want, you know, you're going to be okay because he's quite, and I said, no, actually, I sort of am quite relishing having my eyes open to it because I have to say, you know, Instagram is a funny old, beast like it, there's the good and the bad of it and you're right I am one of those vulnerable women right I search for answers because I think women at all sorts of different ages and your darling one would have seen a lot of this there's moments where you are clutching on to things and I've been that person where I've done an awful lot of faddy things and I try now to keep it balanced but I realized in the beginning of COVID I was doing a lot of things going this is an immune boosting green juice because he's sighing right and actually you probably weren't following me on Instagram at the time so therefore you wouldn't have done but somebody um emailed me and they were like stop using the word immune boosting the reason I stopped so I thought you're right I don't really know what I'm talking about like I, I'm not medically qualified I don't know that what I do you know is doing that so I've tried to do it in a different way if I put something on that I like that I've cooked that I've made and I do love green juice I mean I actually kind of like them anyway but I will put the ingredients but I'll try to just get it right but I hope I'm not that extreme but I do totally take on board what you're saying because I, I love healthy cooking but there is a real thing of being made to feel bad if you're not following a certain regime yeah a healthy diet is very very important for good health and one of the things that is emerging from the COVID crisis is clear data 
on disparities between income and good health. If you want to live a good, long, healthy life, don't be poor. That's the bottom line. You can break down people's diets as much as you like, but you're going to get a far clearer marker if you simply look at income. It's no accident that the denizens of Kensington and Chelsea have the highest life expectancy in the UK, and those on certain parts of Glasgow have the lowest. You don't even need to look at what's in their fridge to understand why. Uh, it's, it's about time and opportunities and access to healthcare and about a broad diet uh, and being time poor. You know, the, that's what really underpins it. In a way, the hilarious thing is that you, and I, I'm really not trying to criticise you here, but you're, you're in a, a position to have the luxury to wonder about green juice cleanses or whatever. And I, I imagine you're in, in an economic position to afford whatever foods you want. You know, I often joke, you know, I say, I, I, I don't just have a, a good diet. I have a number of diets. Um, and, and, and also, I'm not a paragon of virtue. I'm overweight. That's absolutely clear. I, I, I go to the gym an awful lot. That's one of the things that's been really problematical for me through COVID. And I watch what I eat. And I'm aware that health is, I'm a 54-year-old man. And, you know, good health doesn't go on forever. And you have to be concerned about these things. What I won't do is grab on to things which are not backed up by a, a, a reasonable, rational, you know, sense of it, post-enlightenment thought. No, I agree. And I think, you know, as I say, it, for me, it's like a learning journey. As I, because part of why I do this is that as I'm doing it, I'm interviewing people in that industry that I can ask some of the questions to and go, you know, supplements, this, that, and the other, because there's a, there's a doctor that I follow, Dr. Ben Lynch, who I've really found fascinating during COVID. And his big thing has just been, listen, if you broadly kind of gave everybody with a vaccine, a packet of vitamin D, people that couldn't afford it, he said, you know, that's a big deficiency. And there's been medical proof in that. So then I'm a bit like, okay. Well, even that is argued over, actually. Is it? Uh, yeah, I'm um, a, a big follower of the COVID app, the Zoe COVID app, uh, King's College, um, Professor Tim Spector out of King's College. And they've done amazing work and their their metrics, um, you know, I've, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to numbers. I do take a, a vitamin D pill every every evening with dinner because I've seen some convincing, but not all. But then I've also seen other stuff which isn't. But the one thing is that a vitamin D pill is not going to actually damage me in any way but I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to be the the best thing I could do is not go out. So, so I'm going to stick with that one. Stick with that one first. Yeah. No, but you're right. There is, it's, and it's very difficult because COVID, if you like, gave that industry this kind of I extreme audience. I would get very angry and, and still do, because obviously I have an open email address. Um, anybody wants to email me? J-A-Y.Rayner, R-A-Y-N-E-R, at observer.co.uk. Off you go. And I would get endless emails from food companies saying immunity boosting berries leaves um teas immunity boosting teas for christ's sake uh, really eat a healthy diet take some exercise don't drink too much don't smoke too much and let your body do its thing i i say it because i know that i am one of those people i'm quite easy prey like i get you know sucked in like less so now a year in and covid but in the beginning you know trust me i was why is that? Did you have a history of ill health at some point? Or did you just suddenly discover you were 50 or whatever? Being in my 50s and menopausal made me look at a lot of things in my life. But actually, weirdly, my mother, who 
was a very passionate cook well before her time. I mean, well before sort of it was even prevalent, got very into all these things of like sort of growing mung beans and alfalfa on blotting paper in our kitchen. It's sort of out of character with my mother, but she got very into health food and she did this thing called the Fun Food Factory, which was probably the first children's program related to healthy cooking and talking about broccoli having vitamin C. And she did it in a very gentle way. But I used to laugh because my friends would come over and think we were having hamburgers. And in fact, they were lentil burgers. You can't replace a hamburger with a lentil burger, let me tell you. No, you can't. And so I guess she sort of instigated that interest in me. And then I did have, not bad ill health, but I had enough sort of little things I sort of looked to food. I looked for answers. And I guess over the years, I've realized that actually, although I'm, you know, there are certain things I try not to, you know, that I monitor to not have too much refined food or processed food. I try to eat of the moment from the land, what's fresh in my area, farm food. I try to do it that way. And COVID gave one that opportunity because where I live, there were farm stands. So I stopped going, you know, I started, you know, shopping locally and it made me much more conscious. Here's the really interesting thing, Emma, which is, I mean, this is a much bigger conversation, which I've written a whole book about called Greedy Man in a Hungry World, which looks at the tropes around middle class eating and organics and local and seasonal and all of that. And where does the balance lie? The interesting thing is that the ability to shop in your local farmer's market and all of that sort of stuff is a marker of affluence and a middle-class lifestyle, which already means that you are healthier than, than those who are on a lower income, which means that you actually have very little need to do that. It's in itself a marker of, of proof that you don't need it. No, and there are things, you know, like there, there's certainly things like if I if I don't eat red meat, I feel better. That's just, you know, so there's certain things I do not out of a moral reason, but I'm like, okay, for me, that works. I do like, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I totally take on board what you're saying. And, and I have to say through you, I've sort of opened my eyes to the fact that I'm much more conscious that, 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 that one mustn't be that person that's kind of going, you need to do this in order to be like me. And I often get messages on Instagram, somebody going, oh, you know, your skin's eyes, like, what do you do? Or, you know, what do I do? I'm 50. And I always, always reply with something saying, I'm not a doctor and it's a completely bespoke thing to you. And I guess when, you know, another thing that happened to me during lockdown was my sister got diagnosed with cancer and cancer opens a whole other ball game of people going, oh, well, if you've got cancer, you need to eat this, do that. And and I've had endless long distance. I mean, my sister and I basically spend the day on Zoom together. That's how we've managed to cope with being apart. And I've just said to her, you eat what makes you feel good. Like, you know, because all these things and it, and it really was an eye opener for me because there are things like you get these things I didn't know from chemo. You get this metal taste in your mouth that is unbearable. Mm. So she said to me, actually, I'm loving Indian. Like I need spices. There's been a very, yeah, a very interesting project set up by a chap called Ryan Riley, whose mother died of cancer. And he was a, a home ec and a food ec who, who'd work on cookbooks and, and food programs. And in her memory, he set up a thing called Life Kitchen. It's about creating dishes which can be tasted and enjoyed by people going through chemo or those caring for them. Uh, and I would really encourage anybody who, and there are many of them, um, who is either caring for someone going through chemo or is going through chemo to look up Life Kitchen. They have uh, obviously a presence on social media and Ryan has authored a cookbook. And that sort of thing, that's really important because you know, the, the grindingness of chronic disease with occasional acute moments, 
you what you need more than anything else is a sense of normality of being able to live in the moment and and okay it's tuesday what am i having for lunch so that you become a person who happens to have cancer not a cancer subject trying to have a life and uh, and all of that is vital so life kitchen is a is a really good resource it's not based on saying and this will make you better and make you survive cancer no the doctors will do that the doctors are the one who are looking after your health and let them do their thing her doctor was really good he was like you you know you do lack iron so actually do have some red meat and yeah. and and this and the other but but eat what makes you feel good and and she does that and friends have cooked her she's she's got some great cooks who are friends and I said now's the time to have had some great friends who are chefs and she has and and I said you know just eat what you like and I thought oh it's so different from a lot of what we see in the media which is like you need this and it'll if you only drink celery juice throughout your whole thing you'll you'll but you can see what this is also doing it's a narrative which says uh if you get cancer it's your own fault now, obviously, if you smoke 60, 90 a day or whatever, yeah, maybe maybe you did have a part to play in it. But for the most part, I mean, 99%, you are not responsible. You are not guilty in some way uh, for getting your cancer. Cancer is the thing that happens. It's like the militaristic language that is used. You know, are you going to fight it? Which presupposes that the five-year-old who dies of leukemia just wasn't up to it. And it's it's insidious and it's wrong. And it's, it makes me furious. I have to say, oh, you get on well with my sister because the one thing we have, she's if one more person calls me a warrior woman. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> she said, because basically she said it puts a huge pressure on you. People of keep saying, if anybody can beat and fight this, it's you. And she is a journalist and she's writing oh, no. the most amazing book about it. And one of my favourite chapters she's written so far is just the pressure to be a warrior and the pressure to fight it. I keep waking up thinking, what if I can't? Yeah, exactly. I was very good friends with John Diamond, Nigella Lawson's first husband, who died far too young and would have been absolutely a nightmare on Twitter. He'd have been so good at it. He wrote a book called um, A Sea Because Cowards Get Cancer Too. Uh, and and that was his absolute clear point. I hate the language around morality. To bring it back to food um, and the sort of stuff you're talking about, one of those bits of language is eat clean, clean eating. As in, if you don't do what people call clean eating, then you're dirty. It's a, attaching morality to behaviour. Look, if you're not shagging a sheep or interfering with the nuns or something. Do you know, your morality is fine. And how dare you try and accuse me of being in some way morally suspect because of what I have for dinner? Yes, and I think we all have to do what what sort of works for us, really. And I suppose the good thing for COVID, I thought, because sort of just, you know, taking it from the consensus of my friends and things, is that, and particularly living in America... I don't mean to be disparaging about it, but a lot of my friends, if you went for dinner, if I think of going to dinner at somebody's house, somebody lovingly cooking for me, something that they love or a family recipe or kind of going, Emma, I hear you loved, you know, Brussels sprouts. I've done this amazing, whatever it is, right? In America, you go to somebody's house, it's haphazard, right? And they, it, it's at six o'clock and they go, oh, Jay's coming. He really loves Indian food. We're getting some Indian food for him. But for the kids, we're getting pizzas from this place. And I've to, and, and you're like, and it's chaos. And everybody sort of ate and ran. It was like the weirdest thing. In, in, in COVID, I do believe that people have gone into their kitchens. They've had time to cook. They've maybe perhaps tried cooking when they didn't before. They've, they've had to become a cook. 
Uh, I, I don't know if you have ever followed any of Stanley Tucci's stuff, the great Stanley Tucci, American film actor, was a guest uh, on my podcast, Out to Lunch. Early on, we actually managed to do it in a restaurant. But Stan l- loves his cooking and his account of cooking for an extended brew because he has some older kids from his, his marriage to his, to his late first wife and now younger kids from his marriage to his second wife and he needs an agroni at five o'clock and he's constantly kind of throwing things and he loves to cook and he's he's published a couple of cookbooks. Uh, what Following Stanley, I think he's on Insta, you'll find him on Instagram, is absolutely glorious. Yeah, because I love, I've, I've loved that element of it and I, and like for my husband for Christmas, I found this amazing company called the chef and the dish and you you can book a, a zoom with a chef anywhere in the world and, and they taught my husband I use the word taught loosely to make tiramisu and a, oh yeah <laughs> a panna cotta that afraid had to be binned instantly never never quite set gelatin is as he says very difficult to work with gelatin okay. so that didn't work but I feel like people have been more inventive and more aware of sitting down and eating and talking. Again, at, at the risk of, of sounding like a stuck record, it's a very, I think the great story of COVID is the dichotomy between the polarisation of economic availability. So for those of us who are remain employed or have a source of income or well off or whatever, yeah, there's been opportunities to look on the bright side. I am going to ask you what gives you life and what feeds your soul, not because I'm looking for a wellness answer, just because I'm intrigued with people to know what does give them life and what does feed their soul. I mean, often the answers are, the, are very similar, but sometimes they're not. And I feel like you might have a different a different one. What does give you life? Um, dinner. But I mean dinner in the sense of the table. And I mean sense of the table with my family around it. The thing we've held to is we all sit down at seven o'clock every day. I have a 21-year-old. He's had a very tough time because his university degree finished into the teeth of this. I have a 17-year-old who's doing a bit of home college work and whatever. Uh, but uh, my other half, Pat, works downstairs in her office as an editor. Seven o'clock every day, we will gather around the table. And yeah, the food's fine. The food's nice. Christ, you know, I do for a living. I cook. As, as part from anything else, I make sure that we cook, and so does she. And so does actually Eddie, to be fair, the, the eldest. He cooks once a week. But it's more about gathering around the table and taking some time. And even if it is only a 20-minute conversation, that's fine. Not beating myself up gives me life. You know, if I just want to sit on the sofa and watch Pointless, I will. And I won't be judged for it. I've been on it twice. I love a game show. The one thing I do need to do... Uh, and I've alluded to this, is I, I need a reasonable exercise regime. And I found the closure of gyms very, very hard. Um, so I now work out in my bedroom, planking like a... yeah, Trying to get this body to plank. It's a miracle, Emma. As a cautionary tale, uh, the right hand... I, I, you may have seen me wriggling slightly. I now need a, a right hip replacement. And it's probably as a result of certain things I did in the gym. So <laughs> there you go. And what feeds your soul? The same sort of thing or something different? Music. I have a sideline as a jazz pianist. I don't know if you're aware of that. I have a quartet. I play jazz piano and I front a thing called the Jay Rayner Quartet. My name is on it because it's all my fault. Our residency is Brasserie Zadell, which is a fabulous restaurant in the centre of London. Um, but we play everywhere. Ronnie Scott's festivals, whatever. Um, and time at my piano. I have a very nice piano. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was the gift I bought myself when my parents finally both went and uh, there was a bit of money. And I thought, well, I, that I'll remember them by. So there's a lovely little baby grand down there. 
and working my way through tunes or arrangements. We're working on a, a new project, which will speak to you, actually, because there was a moment in the 80s, Emma. I, we're almost exactly the same age, you and I. There was a moment in the 80s when a whole bunch of bands got into the charts and they were very much jazz and nobody noticed. Sade, Matt Bianco, Working Week, Swing Out Sister. So we are taking all of that back to its jazz roots and uh, and what was the Jay Rennie Quartet. If this project comes off, we'll see. I'm planning a year ahead. So I'm working my way, maybe the Jay Rennie Sextet or the Jay Rennie Biggish Band. I'm working my way through a whole new repertoire of, of those 80s tunes and taking them back to their jazz roots and having a high old time with it. And I find it extremely nourishing, but also, and this is, I think, absolutely key, it is the best Zen thing. It's mindful. It really, you can't be thinking about many other things when you're trying to work the changes in a tune that you're not familiar with and you're trying to get your hands to move. I'm an old man who didn't learn enough scales when I was younger. I have absolutely no right to be able to perform at Ronnie Scott's, but God knows somehow I do. And so I work on that on a daily basis and that keeps me utterly sane. I couldn't think of anything more pleasurable. No, I'm, I think that sounds incredible. The thought of you, but you've just reminded me now of Sade. I loved Sade. And Matt Bianco, all that, I mean, yes. Yeah. It's all good stuff. That's actually, I think, literally the first time I've publicly said that I'm doing that. We'll see if it happens. So if you never hear another word about this project, this will be the one market. I, I'm lucky in that my journalism, my broadcasting means that I've not wanted for work or money. I worry endlessly about the musicians I work with who have not had that access. Um, but yeah, live music, live theatre, all of that. I want it all back desperately uh, because I think that actually is properly important for the soul. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, am I allowed to shamelessly say that I have a new series of my podcast starting? Please shamelessly tell me that. So Out, out to Lunch has got a new series. Out to Lunch season five. We have... Paloma Faith, we have Darren Brown, uh, Sophie Ellis Bexter, Noel Clark, Philippa Perry. Uh, we have quite the lineup coming up. Some of them are actually in restaurants and some of them via Zoom as we're talking now with takeaways. I send famous people takeaways. And uh, one of the things I think we've learned over lockdown is that famous people are just like you and I. They've got bugger all to do with their time if they're locked at home. So they're delighted if you send them a takeaway. No, 100 percent. It's been much better for getting guests, let me tell you, because I'm that sure. old chestnut of I can't, I'm actually working on a new project. Like, but are you? Because actually uh, yeah. you're at home no, like you're me. Really. <laughs> you're not. Emma, it's been lovely. Thank you for Oh, having it's me. been such a joy. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And also, if you've enjoyed this episode, do leave a five-star review and you can find out more by going to buyemma.co.